for your word. We pray that it would be your Holy Spirit leading us. Thank you for being awesome in our lives. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. You know that, that song, Come Thou Found, um, I always thought it was a Christmas song because it has that line, um, I raised my Ebenezer, and I always thought Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, Christmas Carol. Um, and one time I, I decided to figure out well, what does Ebenezer actually even mean, right? So it's the idea of the stone of hope. So in First Samuel, um, there's the battle with the Philistines, and God um, gave a sound like thunder, and it caused confusion, and the children of Israel came in and beat the Philistines, and they raised up this rock um, as a, a sign of thankfulness and a sign of hope and help. So this, it's, that is the rock of Ebenezer. So anyway, it's, it. I guess it could be a Christmas song if you reached a little bit, but that's what the Ebenezer part means. Anyway, um, we're going to go ahead and continue on with our Advent candles, so come on up, kiddos, who are going to do that with me here. Um, So we've been working our way around the table. Um, A a couple of kind of neat things that I learned about this too, so this Advent wreath, right, we have a wreath here. Um, The circle, it actually comes from uh, Germany. There was a man in Germany who had a house that he'd opened to boys and young men who were struggling in life um, and who didn't have jobs and things like that and uh, were being naughty. And so he decided to teach them some skills. And as you can imagine, if you've ever been the parent of a young person, um, starting December 1st at like 12.30 a.m., what is the question you get for the next 25 days? When's Christmas, Right? How many more days till Christmas? And so he got tired of answering that question. So he created this circle, and he'd have the candles set out, and each weekend would be a white candle, the rest of them would usually be red or something like that, and he would um, light each candle as the day went along, So that, um, and it served a couple purposes. It taught the kids how to count, and some of the adults too, um, and also taught them about the calendar, and he didn't have to answer those questions anymore. Um, so that's kind of where this came from. Churches and, and things like that have taken it and given it different purpose and meaning um, that we'll go through here. But um, you guys can take turns doing that. Um, so this first one, you'll go ahead and light that one there. Again, that's the hope candle um, or the prophecy candle sometimes it's called. So you have to push that top part down really hard and then click it. Yeah, she'll show you how to do it. There you go. Oh, and then click. You might have to click a couple of times. <laughs> Here, let me, I'll show you and then I'll let you do it, okay? So you push it and click it. So see how it pushes there? Yeah. I was joking in the first service that they have child-proof lighters. I think they need to have a child-friendly lighter for Advent. <laughs> it's okay. See if you can do it. She'll get it loosened up for you. There you go. Yeah. All right, so that's the, yeah, the prophecy or the hope candle. And the idea is that we get these prophecies and we read about them and it gives us hope. The second one here, um, the Bethlehem candle or the faith candle. Go ahead and do that one if we can get the clicker to work. You got it, you got it. Or maybe I'll push and you click. Let's try a teamwork. Ready? Click it. Oh, man. It's just tricky, isn't it? Oh, boy. <laughs> it is a little bit. Here we go. Is it still? Boy, it's just not doing it, huh? Here, let's do this. I'll push it, and you click. Push that clicker really hard. There we go, and we'll do it together. 
Yeah, there you go. All right, you guys go around to that next one. So the next one that we lit last weekend is the joy candle or the shepherd's candle. The idea that the shepherds had great joy when they heard the, the sound or the, the angels coming. Go ahead and do that fourth one over there. Okay, and that's the, the angel's candle or the candle of peace. And the angel's saying, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Yeah, we got it. Hey, yeah, right? Thank you guys. You guys did really good. And go ahead and take a grab a seat. Yeah, man. That last candle, the Christ candle, we leave for the uh, Christmas time coming up. So, again, the Advent, you know, the idea of the coming, this is to remind us. Um, I think these traditions are really important. Uh, you know, God set up a lot of physical reminders for us because he knew we're human and we forget things. Um, they also cause us to think about things. So, Anyway, as we go through our message this morning, you can think about that. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Um, And we're going to take a look at the story from a slightly different perspective. So this is um, the escape uh, to Egypt from Herod. Uh, We're going to take a look at Joseph and Mary and Jesus and the situation around that. And, uh, but we're going to look at it from a slightly different perspective, I think, than we would normally do. Um, but first, I want to start off, as, as I was doing research for this, um, this message, um, you know, I, a couple of thoughts came to my mind. I was reading this story about an island in the Philippines that still struggles with the disease of leprosy. Right? For the most part, leprosy has been wiped out. Uh, we've had science has created medications and pharmaceuticals around getting rid of leprosy. We've learned enough about it to, to do that. But there's still a few spots around the world that struggle with it. So the government of this island in the Philippines has set up a clinic and has asked all the residents who have leprosy to go to the clinic and get free um, medication for it. It's proven medication. Um, it will get rid of leprosy. And so in the morning, when they go to get their medication, um, there will be a line outside the clinic. And people who have gone and volunteered there can attest to this and have stories about this. But they'll have a line of people who have leprosy um, to come get their medications. They'll come through, get their pills. And then there's a doctor at the exit that will say, all right, now um, open your mouth so that I can make sure you took your pill. And it uh, kind of struck me. I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of strange. Um, but the, what they've found and when they've asked people about this is that the, um, the government has set up funding and world organizations have set up funding to help support these people with leprosy. And these folks are afraid that if they're cured, then that help will go away. Um, and, and so I've found that a lot of times they'll get the pill because it's mandated and then go and spit it out. And um, you know, the thought occurred to me is like, man, how, how human it is to reject the very therapy or the very medicine that is given to us that will cure a disease. But um, I've done the same thing. Um, you know, I, I had eye surgery last week. It was not a fun process. But they, they gave me these prescription eye drops that are supposed to help things heal up and, and get better quicker and, and things like that. And I'm pretty good about taking them. Um, you know, but I, I keep them at home because I'm always afraid I'm going to lose them. They'll fall out of my pockets or whatever. And um, you know, I usually make it home before I have to take my eye drop. But sometimes the day runs on long. And so my eye kind of dries out and I'm rubbing it. And my wife will be like, hey, you know, why don't you just keep it with you? You know, keep your medicine with you. You can take it. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to forget it or lose it. It's not, not cheap. It's expensive stuff. And so jokingly one time she said, okay, well, I'm just going to buy you a fanny pack so that you can keep your medication in there. And I said, you may gouge my eye out. I will lo- willingly lose my vision, but I will never wear a man purse on my butt. 
not going to do it. <laughs> okay? And it was like that, the idea that I'm, I'm kind of rejecting the very thing that could help me. Uh, right? And she still kind of pokes at me for that one. Like, if I forget, you know, I'm going to get you that. You know, and now I had a fanny pack back in the 80s, and I think I have a grandma that still has one. But, um, you know, so we, we've all been there. But yeah, so this, this idea that there, there's always this thing in our heads where we have this uh, rebellion sort of thing or whatever it is that gets in the way of us doing the very thing that is good for us. So I wanted you to keep this in mind as we look at the story here. Um, So we're going to start reading in chapter 2, verse 12, if you want to follow along. Um, So in in talking about the the wise men, it said, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and the mother, and escape to Egypt. Herod's going to search for all the children and kill them. Or he's going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. That, that one blew me away. So Joseph uh, had a dream. An angel told him to get up. He didn't even wait for morning light. He got up right after he had his dream in the night, and he left. Now, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. He has a, probably at this point, the, their best guess is it's about two-year-old child. Okay, um, He's got a wife who's a, a fairly new mother um, in a new city. Uh, he had all kinds of craziness happened in his life. They're just getting settled back down. He's um, traditionally thought of as a carpenter, but maybe he was doing stonework or whatever it is, so he's probably got a job that he's had for a little while. In fact, he probably even needed to wake up the next morning to go to his job, but when he was given a command, he did it right away. He got up and left. Okay, it's also thought that probably the gifts that the wise men gave Jesus, um, you know, they were, they were crazy gifts. They had a lot of symbol, symbolism around them. They were not typical gifts that you would give the family of a, of a carpenter or of a, a, a laborer like Joseph. You wouldn't give them these gifts, but probably he used these to finance their journey. Now, where did the angel tell them to go? He said to go to Egypt. Egypt, from where he was at right there, was about 400 miles away, just to the border of Egypt. 400 miles. It probably took about a month for them to travel so not only did he get up in the middle of the night, grab his two-year-old son, and I can remember when Caleb was two years old, if I woke him up in the middle of the night, I probably would not be standing before you because Nadia would have killed me. If I woke my two-year-old child up in the middle of the night who was sleeping, because at that point he, he wasn't sleeping through the night, and if I woke him up before he did, it would be bad. But, you know, so Joseph did all these things and even left his job, and he was going to travel 400 miles. They hadn't bought any camels or donkeys at that point. Um, he, he didn't have, you know, in the job that he had, he probably didn't have a whole lot of money saved up. So he didn't, wasn't prepared. He didn't have a bunch of food ready for a journey. But he got up and he left. And that kind of obedience, man, I, it's just, it's hard to even fathom. Right? So we'll keep reading. So he left for Egypt in verse 15, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, so not only did he leave in obedience, he also fulfilled a prophecy. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old or under in accordance with the time that he'd learned from the Magi. Okay. This was not uncharacteristic for a person like Herod. Um, he was ruthless. 
uh, more so than we probably even know from history. Uh, this is a, a king that killed some of his own children, some of his own wives, some of his own leaders, because he felt threatened and he thought that his throne was being threatened. So it was not uncharacteristic for him to go and do something like this. In fact, it's thought that probably this wasn't even the first time that he'd gone out and killed babies. Okay? Uh, Bethlehem was a small village, so the, the thought is that it's somewhere between 12 and 24 children that got killed. And this was like, yeah, this is the way Herod functioned. This was how, how he worked. He tried to suppress it as best he could. Okay, in fact, Matthew is the only book that even records this. But the families of the, the killed children were dealing with grief. And so Matthew chose to put this in there, gave them a voice. And Herod tried his best to suppress this. In fact, he successfully suppressed from the news of the day most of what he had done. And that was a big part of the success of his rule, was that he had control over a lot of the flow of information. Now in verse 17, it says, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Verse 18, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. This is what's considered a dual-purpose prophecy. So this prophecy was fulfilled um, before that time in the idea that the children of Israel had been persecuted in a lot of different ways. The, the word Rama that you see there, um, it's actually the direct translation for a high place. And there were several of these Ramas around the area. Okay? In fact, if you were to go to that area now and ask a tour guide, where is Rachel buried? They would point to a high place um, somewhere within view there and say, Rachel's right over there on that Rama. Okay, Rachel represents um, the mother of Israel. She was also the mother of Joseph. So there's a lot of um, different lineups as far as why she is weeping. She didn't realize when she demanded from her husband, give me a child or I'll die, she didn't realize the sorrow that would follow that. Yeah, man, how common is that with us too? When we ask for desperately for something, we don't realize sometimes what we're asking for. But here it says that uh, there was great mourning and weeping. And this prophecy was again fulfilled with the killing of these children. Okay, and Matthew points that out. I think it's also important to remember too that in Egypt where the angel asked Joseph to go, there was a large Jewish population. So it wasn't just that God commanded Joseph to go, there was a, a place for him to go. Um, so it's important to realize that too, right? Verse ni- or, uh, yeah, verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up. Again, <laughs> he got up right then and there. You see that obedience. Took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Archelaus was similar to his father in his ruthlessness, but he was not similar to his father in his vision. Herod had a huge vision. He had big ideas. He was a, what was considered a great king, though ruthless. Archelaus was a small man, but he was just as mean. So Joseph had good reason to fear him. Okay, he was similar to his father in the bad stuff. And I think it's important to point out Joseph's fear here than that he had obedience even amidst his fear. Right? The Bible doesn't point out and say, well, Joseph, because you were afraid, we're going to look down on you for the rest of your history. Or if you had just had a little bit more faith, it would be better. 
Right? No, it said he was afraid and yet he still obeyed. He still did what he was supposed to do. And I think that's important to remember when we look at this, when we start to apply that to our own lives. So verse 23, and he went down and lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be a Nazarene. Here's something interesting. I challenge you, look through the entire Bible, the, the Old Testament, New Testament, you will not find that prophecy except in Matthew that he will be called a Nazarene. It's not there. Now, that's also not uncommon. There were quite a few prophecies in that time that were so commonly heard that they weren't written down. They were transferred orally from family to family or from prophet to prophet. So that's a possibility. There are also some possibilities around the word Nazarene, which was similar to the word branch. And there was a prophecy that talked about how, you know, Jesus was to be the branch that came out of that root system and things like that. But I, I really think that it's more along the lines of that, um, Nazareth, Nazareth was not considered a town that good things came out of. In fact, um, let's see, I have it written down here. Was it Nathaniel? Nathaniel in John chapter 1 said, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, we all know these backward towns. I'm not going to name any of them from Oregon. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm from one, in fact. But, you know, the, these little towns that seem kind of backwards, that haven't really grown with the times. You know, I think of words like hillbilly or podunk, okay? Um, you know, and you all know these towns. You have one that comes to mind. But Nazareth was that town. If you do a little research on Nazareth, Nazareth was very conservative in, in its thinking, in its ways. It was not progressing at the same rate that the rest of the Middle Eastern world was. Um, Nathaniel was even thought of as a person who didn't talk badly about it. It said it, no, there was no malice to be found in Nathaniel. So he wasn't given over to talk about talking bad about people or people groups, but he said, what good could come from Nazareth? And I think that's important to understand because Christ from birth was rejected by so many. He was hunted, right? Um, Christ in his life was rejected by so many. Towards the end of his life, he was hunted. Christ now is rejected by a huge portion of the population that he came to save. I think we see that thread through here too. You know, God chose to put his son into a family that was poor, hardworking, but poor. He chose to do it in a town that was not looked upon greatly or favorably. Nobody who was politically influential from that time ever came from Nazareth. It just didn't happen. I think it's important to understand that. We look at the obedience that Joseph has. And I think that's what I really want to pull out of this for you guys. There was a time um, when Nadia was pregnant. Um, she was probably somewhere around six or seven months pregnant, so very pregnant. And we, um, we do all kinds of adventurous things. And um, having a kid never really um, ended that for us. It slowed us down a little bit, but we kept on trucking. And so we decided to go mushroom picking um, as she's big and pregnant and has all kinds of energy from that. And uh, so we went up in the woods. We were way up there, and she was probably, I don't know, 20 yards away from me, something like that, working her way up through the bushes. And she was the smart one. She sticks to the trails. She'll find, like, a deer trail or something and stick along it and pick the mushrooms. And I'm the, the foolish one. I'll go tromping off through the bushes like, um, like a wild animal. And uh, so I had my bucket, and I picked some mushrooms. And I took a step in the bushes, and I heard this crunch. If you've ever gone tromping through the bushes at that time of year and you hear a crunch, you know what that is. It's a bee's nest. It's a ground hornet's nest. And I heard the crunch, and I looked down um, just in time to see an entire swarm of ground hornets come up at my face. And I had just enough time to look over at my very pregnant wife and say, 
run to the truck right before they all hit me. I could feel the wind from their wings. I felt who knows how many hundreds of hornets hit me in the face. And, and I took off running. She was obedient. Uncharacteristically so, she was obedient and went straight to the truck. Had she not done that, there could have been all kinds of really bad consequences. She could have gotten stung a lot. Um, and being pregnant, you know, who knows? That could have been, you know, a, an early delivery, you know, 20 miles away from the nearest pavement road and, you know, even three times that many from a hospital. Um, you know, we could have lost Caleb. We, there could have been all kinds of consequences had she chosen to be like, well, what's going on? Like, why aren't you talking to me in a more respectful tone, Josh? You know, um, you know any of those things. Um, but she chose to obey. Now, I took off like a bat through the woods. And so she made it to the truck, and she was waiting there and had really no idea what was going on until she saw me running through the trees, stripping off all the articles of clothing to get the bees out. Okay, and we got there and took a credit card, and we were scraping the stingers off of me. Um, probably to this day, there are still some of my jacket and pants up in the woods somewhere because we just left them there. But um, yeah, so that you know, this the idea of obedience um, is different than following the rules. It's different than seeing the benefit of something and then choosing to do it because you see the benefit. Obedience is something completely different. It requires a lot. It requires trust. Requires things like humility, right? We see that in Joseph. And I want to talk to you guys about obedience. I think um, all of us have areas in our lives where we struggle with obedience. You know, in the New Testament alone, there are over a thousand different commands that we're asked to obey. In fact, if you simplify it down a little bit and take out the, the repetitious ones, you're looking at about 800 of them. And I glanced at them as I was prepping for this. And a lot of them are like, yeah, I can check that off. You know, that's like common sense for good living. That's just the nice thing to do. I can do that. And then there are a few that are like, oh, man, yep, I probably should do that one. (laughs) That one would be a good one to do. Um, But I I don't a lot. I I really should work on that. Um, You know, things like submission, things like tithing, things, you know, some of the harder ones, giving my time, um, having faith in some things, Ooh, respect, right? Um, respecting our husband or our wife, submitting to that, uh, respecting our kids and how to deal with family, letting go of bitterness, forgiving or asking to be forgiven. You know, those are all in there. And those are a lot of the things that we're asked to be obedient to. And a lot of times we choose not to. And I think it's, it's interesting to, to take a look at that. And, you know, as I was preparing for this, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm, I'm so, so tired of sitting and hearing sermons and not doing anything. And saying, you know, that was a really good sermon. I think I learned this, this, or this. And then I go and have lunch with my family and that's it. And I think this should be a congregation who's asked to do something about this. And I think everybody sitting out there probably has something that has come to mind in the last few minutes where you haven't been obedient. I'm going to have Michael come up and play here in just a second. But we're going to do an altar call, and we don't do these very often. And yep, it's scary. It will cost you something. It might cost you a little bit of dignity. Um, it might cost you a little bit of fear or anxiety. Yeah, I get that. There's something about coming forward and making a decision 
that holds you accountable. Something about it that's powerful. You know, the Bible talks about how the tongue is such a small thing, and yet it can turn an entire big ship. Well, something about coming forward physically and making a commitment to be obedient, I think there's power in that. And we as a family, we, we funct, we're supposed to function as a body of believers. So when you choose not to do something that is obedience, it affects me. When I choose not to be obedient, it affects you. And what I'm asking for you guys to do is to be obedient. The kind of Joseph obedience where if you're asked to get up in the middle of the night, uproot your family, take your child and your wife and travel 400 miles for one month, you do it. If God is asking for you to get up, come to the front, make a commitment, you do it. If you're afraid, I get that. So was he. If you're worried about what other people are going to think of you, so was he. His whole family, his whole town thought that his wife slept around on him. And because he chose to marry her anyway, he was just as dirty as she was. So if God's asking you to be obedient in something in your life and you're afraid to get up here, get over it. I have the same things. Just because I'm up here talking doesn't mean I don't have things I need to be more obedient in. So I'm up here too. So I'm going to ask you guys here in a second as I pray to come up here and be obedient. If there's something you want to commit to, whether, you know, this church is amazing, but we need help. Our Awana's program has over a hundred kids and we need more help. Kids that want to recite Bible verses. And we just need people to listen to that and mark things off on their page. I need help with the youth. We have teenagers that want to come to youth group. And I need help from godly adults who want to input into teenagers' lives. You know, in the secular world, there are adults that spend six, or six to eight years in college just to try and help teenagers. Here we have an opportunity. We have teenagers here. And I can't get people to go over to that room to help me out. We have a men's group that is suffering. And we need people to come. We have mission stuff. We have a women's group. We have a seniors. We have things that need help, we, that need your time, that need your money. What is it that you need to be obedient in and you need to decide to do right now? Do it. Make a commitment. Come up here. Don't sit in your seat. J, uh, Joseph didn't sit in his bed and say, I'll do it in the morning. He made a decision and he was obedient. So let's pray. If you want to come up, come up. Dear Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to serve in a body of believers where we have an effect on each other. Lord, you have great things planned for this church. You just need your people to be obedient. Convict their hearts. What is it that you need to convict them of? Is it their time? Is it their attitude? Is it bitterness? Is it unforgiveness? Is it something they need to be forgiven for? Lord, cause us to be obedient. Cause us to understand that whatever it's going to cost us is more than paid for for the future. That what we choose to do or not do affects those around us in big ways. That you will bless obedience 
You'll help us have the strength and the courage to do it. Lord, I pray as these folks go out this week, you'll give them the courage to be obedient in that moment that we need to do it. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that if we choose not to do it in the right moment, sometimes you give us a second chance. Pray that we'd have the courage to take that too. Lord, as the Christmas season approaches and we spend time with family, we spend money on things like gifts, you cause us to have the right attitude, the attitude of obedience, and learn something from what Joseph did with his family. We thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.